Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to episode two of the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and today I'm talking with Professor Sarita Stella Tamaya Moraga. In this conversation, we get into how she discovered her passion for religious studies, her career plans in college, meditation, mindful brownie eating, religious tolerance, and much, much more. You can now check out VoicesOfSantaClara.com to see all of the podcast episodes and read some of the transcripts, or find the podcast by searching for Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. So here we go. Enjoy the show. All right, so I am happy to be here today with Dr. Sarita Stella Tamayo Moraga, and she received a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas, then both a master's and PhD from the University of Chicago in religious studies and the history of Christianity, respectively. And she has taught a variety of religious studies courses at Santa Clara University and is well loved by her students. Uh, she is also the resident director of the McLaughlin Walsh Residence Hall, meaning she leads programs and lives right next to students. And Dr. Tamayo is also actively involved on campus with the Ignatian Center for Jesuit Education and the University Lead Scholars Program for first-generation students. So I'm excited to uh, be here today and have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So to start out, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit of your childhood. What was it like growing up for you? What was your family like as a child? Certainly. So I am a third generation Mexican American from South Texas. Um, I know for certain I'm third generation on one side. I can't remember about the other. And I grew up in what felt like a small town, Harlingen, Texas, 30 minutes from the Gulf and 30 minutes from the border. Spanish was my first language. And so up to the age of three, when I went to nursery school, my world was all in Spanish. And I see now what a gift that was and how unusual it was for a third generation uh, Mexican-American. And I'm very grateful that it was my first language. So growing up, I was lucky to be around an enormous family, lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles, uh, loving grandparents. And my grandfather had been a farmer and rancher. So we grew up chasing chickens, planting watermelons, running away from the bull, <laughs> getting our new pants caught on barbed wire. And one of my favorite memories that I can call to mind instantly is jumping up and down inside a trailer full of picked cotton, freshly picked cotton. Uh, that was uh, like a dream, just really lovely, running through corn, um, or may, Milo, probably, not corn. So uh, a childhood focused on family, on um, being able to bridge worlds. So I learned English according to my parents right away in nursery school. Um, and so I don't, I do remember not knowing English, but I don't remember learning English. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, let's see, education was extraordinarily uh, lauded in my home. 
And my, even my grandmother uh, pushed for her daughters to go to college, which was unusual at the time. And so I received enormous support in continuing my education and pursuing my education. And my mother taught me to read when I was three. So right around the time I learned English, I started learning how to read. So I remember a warm, supportive environment that focused on bridging worlds and focused on education as a key uh, to the future and to freedom. Mm-hmm. Were there any uh, challenging times in, I guess, high school or college that kind of helped shape you? Yes. So I loved growing up in my hometown, um, but certainly, like in many areas, it has struggled uh, with what I perceive as racism. And um, in high school, I would hear uh people I was in classes with say terrible things about Mexicans. And so I would speak up and say, please don't say that I'm Mexican. And they would persist and I would keep saying, please don't say that I'm Mexican, this hurts me. And then one person turned to me and said, so I apologize, this might be disturbing or inappropriate, um, turned to me and said, no, you're not Mexican you're not fat, dark, or poor. So at that point, I gave up. And of course, this is my memory of what happened. And I realized that this was beyond my capacity at the time. Uh, These were people I went to class with. I felt loved and trusted by them. But race was something, and class really too, now that I look back, was something we could not address. And they wanted to include me but they could not see past their own categories. And I remember that vividly. And it has aided me here at Santa Clara University, at San Jose City College, in terms of trying to inhabit the world of the person who's trapped in a category and the world of someone who can only see through categories and to try to have compassion for both, but open the minds of both. So then did those did those experiences affect your uh, like career plans at all? Or what did you think that you were going to do in life around that time period? So when I went to college, um, my big dream was to uh, be a book editor or uh, a book publisher or to run a bookstore. <laughs> um, so as you can see, there seems to be no no perhaps obvious link between the experience I described and my dreams. But I think that uh, certainly my parents experienced racism and yet they remained open to people of all ideologies. And so I think my dreams of being a book editor or a publisher or a bookstore owner were focused then on the way in which book learning reading about other people's worlds could be a bridge to understanding, to compassion, and so on. So certainly this is in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Primarily, individually, I wanted to keep learning. And I remember at Mass, I think I was in college, the priest was giving a homily. I was visiting my cousin's parish in Brownsville, which is about 30 minutes from my hometown, Harlingen. And the priest asked us to think about what we would die without. 
And the very first thing that came to mind was I would die if I had to stop learning. And that was very sort of not surprising, but also simultaneously shocking. Uh, and so I think my dreams of being a book editor and that world were linked to that and then linked back to how can people's minds be opened to difference, to getting along, to understanding each other, despite uh, distinct uh, visions that may not overlap. And then, uh, so that did not work out mm -hmm. <laughs> for a lot of reasons. I did do an internship in Manhattan one summer at a publishing company, Berkeley Publishing Group, uh, which was part of, actually I've lost track. Uh, and I had a wonderful time, but uh, even I saw that it was unrealistic in terms of where I was at that time and financial means and so on. And so then I thought about law school, but then I took a class from Professor Edgar Palame, a historian of religions at University of Texas at Austin. And I read Jung, Carl Jung's book, Man and His Symbols. And I was blown away by that book. And that, along with many other experiences, including um, a deep devotion to Catholicism and learning, led me to then consider pursuing a PhD in some area of religious studies. Mm -hmm. And then at uh, the University of Chicago, when you were getting your PhD, I guess, what types of what types of questions were you thinking about around that time, mm -hmm. and what? Were there any experiences from uh, that graduate school that really stand out to you still that you remember? So I went in interested in psychology of religion, given my experience with Professor Palame and Jung and other classes focused on history of religions. But I found that, at least for me, the psychology of religion department at University of Chicago uh, was uh, a little more reductive than I had hoped. And so I searched around quite a bit. And in my searching there at University of Chicago, I had a dominant theme that actually I think came from my Catholic background. I wanted to study um, how people become holy. And in particular, the nexus of theory and practice among saints, even then, uh, so as a, um, you know, how old would I have been, 22, 23 year old, I was interested in comparative work between uh, Buddhist conceptions of holiness and Catholic conceptions of holiness. Mm -hmm. So I hopped around from department to department, um, one of my advisors left and so on, and I finally landed in history of Christianity, which is really more historical theology. And there I found a home because um, uh, of Professor Bernard McGinn, who was a specialist and still is, although retired, in uh, Catholic mysticism. Mm -hmm. And I was there able to feed my love of the writings of the saints, the writings of mystics, but most importantly, I was fascinated with how experience of the divine could transform suffering, mm -hmm. and also especially make it easier to be good. And I'm really curious, um, so you practice both Catholicism and Zen Buddhism, um, which is a very unique uh, combination. So I'm wondering if 
um, if there are if you think that those two complement each other, or if there are ever times when you have to, I guess, modify one, or if the two ever come into conflict at all. So for me personally, they don't come into conflict, but certainly for others, they come into conflict. And so that is the primary conflict. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So for me, since Zen does not require one to make the Buddha a deity, I am not required by Zen to then have an additional deity or substitute the deity. And if I were, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And so, you know, as a Catholic... And so for me, the Buddha was a man who provided a path that can help some people transform their suffering. And primarily, personally, it's a way to free myself from the prison of my own mind. I'm sure that's from somewhere. I read somewhere. I can't remember where, but it's been my direct experience. Um, So certainly in terms of perhaps conflicts in philosophy or theology. Others find conflict, but there is precedent for Zen teachers being ordained Catholic priests. Um, Pope Francis himself uh, met with, I think, Bishop John Wester, who has been an advocate of um, dialogue between Catholicism and Zen. And I think there's, at least for now, more acceptance of following both paths. So certainly any theology or philosophy when taken to its minute uh, details will be in conflict. Um, But that's not where I live. That's not what I focus on. For me, it's what tool will help me transform my suffering so I can be a better person and not uh, cause others to suffer. And what tool might help the student who comes to me with anxiety or stress or an inability to stop worrying. And then you've done a lot with uh, meditation. So I'm curious, what does, do you have a personal meditation practice or how would you recommend that maybe a student who hasn't, uh, hasn't tried that before could get started with meditation and what impacts that could have? So certainly there's a lot of literature, some more rigorous than other, other pieces of literature, academic literature, on the physiological changes that meditation can bring. Um, My direct experience is only anecdotal and so not scientific, but for me personally, as a Zen teacher and Zen practitioner, what I sit is Zazen. So that's my form of meditation. So I just meditated uh, this afternoon after class and I sat on the floor in my office with my back to the door Um, I prefer to sit on the floor and first I start by following my breath and noticing what my heart mind is doing, the stream of consciousness of my heart mind. And then I start simply trying to just notice all my sensory data, all my thought data, all my emotional data and so on and not pick or choose. Just let things float by. And then when I attach to something, when I notice, for example, um, if I'm worried about something and that thought goes by, and then I start planning what I'm going to do about it, who I'm going to call, making a list, it's like, oh, whoops, I've attached 
to something. I'm no longer just letting my heart mind flow. And then I go back. Usually I go back to my breath to kind of return to what I learned to call panoramic awareness. So with students, though, especially those who come to me with anxiety and stress or a request to help them uh, manage their stress, I usually invite them to our meditation groups on campus, uh, Wednesdays at 515 in the St. Joseph's Hall in the Multi-Faith Sanctuary, Tuesdays at noon in St. Francis Chapel at the back of the mission. It's easier if you have community, but then I give them little tips like when your alarm goes off, set your phone timer for three minutes, stay in bed, and this is from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Zen master. It's not my teaching, but I find it very useful and I do use it. On the in-breath, say calm mind. On the out-breath, say peaceful body. And if you drift off and start worrying or making a list, when you notice, you come back. In-breath, calm mind, out-breath, peaceful body. And you try to breathe deeply. And then when the ringer goes off, get up, start your day. Um, if students are interested in something more than that, then I talk about incrementally increasing meditation, joining a group because it's easier if you have someone to be accountable to. Um, there's a lot of meditation videos on YouTube, including Zen videos where someone will not even talk, just ring a bell, sit there on YouTube for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, ring the bell and get up. <laughs> so you can have a companion virtually um, and or picking one meal a day to eat mindfully in silence. So there's all types of, of possibilities. Um, in the past couple of years, it seems like meditation has become more of a popular culture uh, type of thing for a lot of people do it to get additional focus or maybe work benefits. Do you think it connects to religion at all or is it more of a, maybe a personal, um, a personal productivity a practice or do you think it connects to spirituality as well? I think it actually connects to all three. Um, the way that I teach it and primarily use it, although I am a Zen teacher, is uh, more way of life. So for me, what's most important is that I provide tools that help students learn, become critical thinkers, and transform their suffering. And also my belief um, that comes actually from Catholicism, that uh, scholarship should cultivate the virtues and thus, the virtue of patience, the ability to cultivate stability, and the ability to question oneself when studying something that's upsetting or that does not match one's worldview can be actually aided by meditation. So um, certainly it functions as a religion. So for example, uh, in Japan, Zen takes on the trappings of religion, marriages, funerals, uh, and so on. Um, but it also functions as a way of life and a philosophy. Um, I think that in terms of its booming popularity, it's primarily, but again, this is anecdotal. I have not done thorough research into this myself. I think it's, it's medical benefits, like lowered blood pressure, um, uh, 
better factors for patients who've had heart attacks. Um, there's preliminary research that it can also help with losing weight because it lowers cortisol. And cortisol, apparently, I'm not a scientist, so I apologize to scientists, uh, cortisol raises belly fat and becoming having less cortisol can help one lose belly fat. There's many other things that go into it. I might be wrong. And so I think dereligionized meditation is a tool anyone can use. And the Dalai Lama himself said people should be allowed to use the type of meditation that transforms their own suffering. And certainly there are many, many types. For example, transcendental meditation is very popular. It's not something I practice, but very popular and can really help people. So it can be connected to any of those arenas you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then I'd like to transition a little bit into your time at Santa Clara. So mm -hmm. um, I guess either in the classroom or in your experience living um, next to so many students, have there been any any, I guess, uh, funny moments or experiences or things that kind of surprised you or that have been unexpected oh. since you've <laughs> been living here? Oh. So there are so many, as you might imagine. But one uh, program that was actually about sort of an interfaith program around mindfulness, mindful eating, mm -hmm. so uh, paying attention on purpose, which is not a phrase proper to me. I hear it. Uh, many teachers use that. We had a program and I think about 15 students came and we did mindful brownie eating, mindful raisin eating and something else, maybe nuts or I can't remember. Um, we were you know, trying to have a wide range so people with allergies could participate. And we had a Muslim uh, explanation about um, how uh, eating could be sacred in Islam and also mindful. We had a Buddhist interpretation, and um, I think we also had a Jewish interpretation. Um, and I'm sure we had a Catholic interpretation. What I found striking was <laughs> that one student, and he wrote a paper about it as well, was almost upset that in the mindful brownie eating experience versus the mindful raisin eating experience, he realized that a raisin is sweeter than a brownie and maybe even tasted better to him, but he didn't want to accept that. He was partially joking because culturally speaking, brownies are seen as sweet and raisins are seen, you know, as a healthy fruit. Mm -hmm. So even though he was joking, watching him struggle with what he had directly experienced versus cultural norms versus what he wanted to think and be very open about it was uh, one of these unexpected joys of a program in the hall. Um, in addition, one reason I wanted to be a faculty director was that I wanted to uh, establish relationships with students that were outside the classroom and not dependent on grades. And so it has been such a joy to me to work closely with community facilitators who are never in my class, we never have an, an academic discussion about grades, and yet we try to change people's lives or widen their minds. Um, there are so many memories, but one that sticks out to me is our series of real talks here in the hall, which deal with difficult issues and use uh, the, a soft opening of a personal narrative. So we had 
a real talk. I can't even remember the exact topic, but I spoke, I told my story and um, it was about how uh, growing up, I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes and the, and then the realization, which sounds probably silly, that that wasn't going to happen and that the wish for that uh, came out of suffering. And, um, and so the topic was around wanting to do this, but having to do that, or even perhaps experiences of a high school counselor saying, oh, you'll never get into Harvard, don't even try, or, so it was more uh, broad than my own experience, but it was very moving to have students listen, then to hear their stories, and, um, and because Real Talks give permission to people to be vulnerable, but also state their view, it, it um, helped us go deeper with material that can be very touchy. Um, yes. Yeah. And what so far in your career are you most proud of? Oh, oh. <laughs> um, gosh. I have sort of uh, conflicting um, answers, or rather jo answers jostling in my head. Um, but I think perhaps what, what I'm, one thing I'm most proud of is the way I have seen pedagogical tools of emotional management, such as the journals, which in ways of understanding religion that help student tr students track emotional reactivity and how that might hinder learning. And to watch students begin to see the way their own worldview, first come to awareness of their worldview, second see how it hinders them from seeing what's in front of them or seeing those who are different compassionately. And third, then to see them shift, not necessarily to become radically different but to acknowledge that their worldview limits their view. And then sometimes to accept, see the way in which their perspective might be a prejudice. And so um, there are many things I guess I'm proud of or feel like I can do here at Santa Clara University, but that's the one that comes to mind at this time. Hmm. Awesome. I'd love to wrap up by asking a couple short questions. Um, so first of all, if you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would it be? <laughs> oh my gosh. I have thought about this because of, uh, is it Vanity Fair that has that at the end the mm. Proust questionnaire? Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh. Oh no. Barbara <laughs> Pym, a mm. novelist, Thomas Merton, and Teresa Ababala. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you could recommend that every college student read a book, what book would that be? Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. What advice would you give to a first-year student starting out of it in college? Get at least six hours of sleep a night. Ask for help before you think you need it. Turn to your community facilitators also before you think you need them. And 
remember that your first quarter, all classes count towards your degree, even if your parents don't think so. What's your favorite place that you've ever traveled? Uh, Tower Mina, Sicily. I don't know if I pronounced that right. T-A-O-R-M-I-N-A, Sicily. And if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Please give others the benefit of the doubt until you no longer can. Hmm. If have, have there been any recent purchases of maybe hundred dollars or less that have that you've really enjoyed or have made a big impact in your life? Last night, no, Saturday night, my husband and I went to the South Bay Guitar Society and we heard one of the best musicians I've ever heard in my life, <clears throat> and I'm 51, Rizzo, R-I-Z-Z-O, I think was his last name, and I bought his CD. His music was transcendent. He had a, ha a humble, calming, serene presence, and the music was healing. Hmm. I'm very happy about buying that CD. Hmm. And finally, what does your ideal Saturday look like? Sleeping late, <laughs> eating somewhere yummy, going to a bookstore, and spending time with my husband and cat. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. We will be back next week with another episode. A special shout out to Miles Elliott for helping with the intro music. And I will see you next week.